1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And our topic today uh, is the recent uh, climate talks in Copenhagen and what they mean for people of the United States, people of Indiana, and I guess people from all over the world. We have uh, three guests with us in the studio today. Uh, we have law and public and environmental affairs professors Kenneth Richards and – Ken Richards, sorry, and Rob Fishman as well as DePauw student Andrew Maddox who attended the talks in Copenhagen. You can join the program by calling eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can join the discussion at our website, org slash noon edition. Welcome to all of you, Ken. I said I was going to call you Ken and then I called you Kenneth right away, right out <laughs> no of the problem, box. So. No okay. problem. All right. Well, let's talk – want to turn to Andrew first because you were you were at the the summit, the talks. Um, just give us sort of an overview of what went on and, and what you were able to see and
2: glean from them. Sure. Well, the talks were located at the Bella Center, which was this massive conference center about 10 minutes outside the city of Copenhagen. And we got there on the Sunday before the talks started and Monday morning rode the subway in and you see this – probably 100-foot-tall windmill behind a series of conference center buildings, and there was the Copenhagen COP15 logo everywhere. COP15 stands for Conference of the Parties number 15, and you are there with suited delegates from all kinds of countries. I heard languages on the train I didn't even know existed, and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden, you're just in this sphere of international policy, and it it was a, a great feeling to be there, if nothing else. And you walk in, and there's a main room with a lot of... Displays set up from NGOs and governmental groups and scientific organizations, plugging their latest innovations and their latest policy developments. And then there, through a hallway, was a, a huge bank of computers and a series of conference rooms, um, and that was where everything was centered. So, how was it that you, uh, a junior at DePaul, right, A right. junior, decided to go? I decided to go following the lead of two of my classmates that went to a preliminary conference over the summer in Bonn, Germany. And I'd been interested in climate policy since my sophomore year. We'd started at the Indiana state level and um, spent a semester working on that. And we got interested in environmental policy issues through that avenue. And it seemed like the opportunity of a lifetime, at least in, in terms of climate change issues. I mean, this was plugged for a long time to be the defining conference where they finally came up with an agreement that everybody in the world could agree on that would curb carbon emissions and and reduce global average temperatures. So I I saw it as a chance to participate on the front lines and it was really hard to turn down.
1: All right. Well, I want to turn to uh, Rob next and say, well, so was this a defining conference?
2: Well, in some
3: ways it was. I I know that a lot of my friends in the environmental movement uh, were bitterly disappointed uh, because the conference did not result in a formal agreement. But if one looks at the larger sweep of environmental law, either domestic or international, what one sees is incrementalism Mm -hmm. and uh, the – I think everyone would agree that the most important agreement to come out of Copenhagen was the accord – Uh, led by a group of a handful of high carbon emitting nations and uh, though an incomplete document, it is a foundation for moving forward. I don't know of anybody who uh, would say that uh, the world is in a worse position in terms of responding to climate change now than it was before Copenhagen though many are disappointed that we're not uh, farther along. Um, And then finally I just note that um, one of the extraordinary outcomes uh, or the extraordinary – one of the extraordinary things that happened was the active involvement of the United States president. Um, that's – nothing like that has ever happened before. The first President Bush did go to the United Nations meeting uh, that uh, – in 1992, the, the Rio Earth Summit that created the U- United Nations Convention on Climate Change but he was not actively involved in negotiating anything. When Kyoto came along, President Clinton sent Vice President Gore – and uh, so the role that President Obama played is was really quite unprecedented in shaping this accord, which is a kind of blueprint for negotiations to come.
0: What kind of message do you think that sent the other nations in attendance?
3: Uh, well, uh, the uh, – I can't speak for the message it actually sent. But certainly the intention was that the United States uh, plans to – certainly the Obama administration wants to uh, play a much more active leadership role rather than a reluctant role of a follower of the uh, certainly climate mitigation train. Mm
1: -hmm. Ken, sort of the same question to you. Um, Was it a defining moment? What were the – what's the
4: impact of it? Well, the the, um, uh, the extent to which it was a defining moment depends on what you were looking for to get out of it. Uh, a lot of people had what were probably unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. going in. Uh, that is that they were hoping for binding limitations on – or binding limits on uh, a broad range of countries. But with 197 countries represented, uh, it's really hard to get unanimity and that's what would have been required. For a final set of binding uh, binding um, caps on on all of the countries, so at some level, the idea of emerging uh, from this with an agreement what 's essentially an agreement to agree, an agreement that we 're going to each each country 's set goals we 're going to stick to them we 're going to uh, make our, uh, our our performance transparent to other countries so they can tell whether we 're meeting our agreements. That's actually a major step forward mm-hmm. and it's probably uh, – as Rob uh, observed, it's, it's an incremental move in the right direction if what you're looking for is a reduction in global emissions. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Our phone number is 855 285 9348 You can also email us, a uh, comment, uh, a question at, at our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I want to follow up on Mary Catherine's question uh, to you, Andrew, since you – were there, what was your sense of what the president's uh, presence meant?
2: At least initially, it carried a lot of expectation coming in, especially on the Friday that he was slated to show up. We were following the Twitter feed, my three classmates and I sitting in our host home. We we couldn't get anywhere near the Bella Center on the night Obama was there, unfortunately. But we were seeing updates pop up sort of every 10 seconds from reporters that were frantically trying to find press conferences and find out where the president was actually going to be. And you know they'd talk about press stampedes every time they got a rumor. They'd run over to the certain room. And so everybody thought he was going to come in and, and really have the defining piece of policy that was going to tip the scales and that the US was finally going to either set some sort of binding carbon target or, or increase its funding or something along those lines that a lot of countries could unite around. Um, it turned out that Secretary Clinton came in and, and promised the, I believe it was hundred billion number, earlier in, on Thursday, and that turned out to be the only real substantive measure that the U.S. was going to put forward at the end of the conference. And you know, Obama became a facilitator between the developed countries, which was important from the developed countries' perspective, but. From the global south and from the developing countries' perspective, it, it was, I think, a pretty major disappointment. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, our producer Ariana sent me a, a link to some of the the blog, your blog, and some other things that um, that you were doing over there. And, and I wanted to sort of get this out right away because there there were a couple of people that were corresponding with you on the blog that were basically the naysayers, like sure. like you know, this is all you know, hokum. It's global warming isn't real. Um, and I'd like to talk for all three of you to sort of talk about that issue. I mean there's still – there seems to be a fairly strong preponderance of the evidence if I can use that legal term, maybe even more than that, uh, on the side of the, the scientists who certainly there's lots of evidence that this is very real. But still, there are people out there that will engage somebody like Andrew in conversation on a blog saying, you know, what is what is all this? So um, Rob, can you respond to that? Well,
3: uh when I think of preponderance of the evidence, well, that's I, like a civil. Uh, I think mm-hmm. of uh, evidence that persuades you at least fifty-one percent. Uh, so this is beyond a reasonable doubt, other. right? I'd say it has to be more beyond a, a reasonable doubt. And though I'm not uh, conversant in the the modeling of of climate and and the the relationships between emission of greenhouse gases and and the changes that are being observed in global temperature, uh, the um, you know, there has been a process of decades-long study by uh, consortia, international consortia of scientists through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the series of reports that that entity has issued over the course of the past 15 years or so has reflected a uh, an, an ever-decreasing amount of uncertainty or an, an ever-more-precise uh, um, modeling that appears to match what we're observing on the planet uh, concluding that um, yes, uh, there is a warming trend. Yes, it appears to be beyond what we've seen in the past in terms of its pace and there is very strong evidence that is related to the emission of the so-called greenhouse gases, the most important one of which is carbon dioxide which met with methane uh, fairly close behind. The, um, you know, if if there are people in town who are interested in some of the questions surrounding the uh, the, the science that shows uh, climate change and its relationship to human activities, the, the law school environmental law program next week in uh, conjunction with a bevy of other units on campus is – hosting a talk by Brian Soden, who uh, served as a lead author on the most recent one of those intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, the one that came out in 2007. He's a professor at the University of Miami School of marine and atmospheric scientists and, and he'll be giving a talk called The Reality of Global Warming, Cold Facts on a Hot Topic <laughs> this coming Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock at, at the law school and the, uh, the public is welcome to come. In fact, we picked that time
4: to make it easy for the public to attend. OK. Ken, um, reaction? Well, the, the thing – the thing that we need to understand or we need to bear in mind is that this is a phenomenally complex topic. Um, understanding climate uh, the the drivers of climate and, and changes in the climate uh, it you know in in policy sometimes we have an expression you know it 's not exactly rocket science well this is this is really rocket science if you if you uh, look at the kinds of models that are required to to pick up um, uh, uh, to, to be able to forecast changes in climate, they're incredibly complex. There's lots of factors. Rob used the expression of preponderance of the evidence. Mm-hmm. We're not looking here for absolute certainty. We'll never have absolute certainty about uh, what kinds of changes are connected to what behavior. But what we do know is that there's um, a, a, a connection between our actions and changes in the environment. We have a pretty good idea uh, what the uh, what the magnitudes are mm-hmm. and uh, based on that – we, we're, we're in a position where we can be taking um, uh, anticipatory action. Okay.
1: All right. We're going to go to the phone. Our first caller is Wayne. Wayne, go ahead.
5: Hi. Uh, you talk about reasonable doubt about global warming. It seems to me the reasonable doubt is overwhelming. We, we have the evidence of fraudulent climate research in, in East Anglia, and not only fraudulent climate research, but w- repressed Repressed research often, when the when the uh, research concluded, made, draw a conclusion against global warming. We have increased ice in Antarctica, which has not been reported on the news media, but it's there. We we had a very cool. We have e- even had a cold summer. We we have just come through one of the coldest periods in January in my memory, and all of the oranges frozen. You know, the oranges frozen Florida. Um, uh, isn't that more than just a reasonable doubt?
1: Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go to our panel now, Wayne. Thanks a lot for the call. All right. Well, I was I was. The, uh, this is Rob
3: Fishman. I was the person who's suggested that the evidence is, uh, passes the reasonable uh, doubt standard, uh, which goes far beyond the preponderance of the evidence standard. Um, and I'm, I'm not prepared to debate the facts, other than to observe that actually last year was one of the very hottest. Years recorded on record, and uh, the fact of the matter is we 're observing uh, less and less ice at the poles and it, it seems as though that is one of the more certain of the effects that we can anticipate to continue into the future mm-hmm. um, and I certainly invite uh, callers who are more interested in these atmospheric models and the facts of observed changes on earth to uh, to come to the talk by Brian Soden next week. Okay. Andrew?
2: The climate gate issue was certainly an interesting one. That's, that's what the scandal is being called now where uh, hackers broke into the University of East Anglia's databases and released tens of thousands of emails. And I saw on a television in the Bella Center uh, discussion with Steven Schneider, who's a a scientist at Stanford and has has been involved in climate issues for decades and has embraced the greater degree of uncertainty in previous years and and moved towards an ever-decreasing degree of uncertainty, as you talked about earlier. And he addressed some of the specific claims in those um, emails of repressed research and, and ambiguously worded models and even deceptively worded models. And there are a few specific examples that I've heard refuted by what I consider mainstream peer-reviewed scientific outlets. And just from my experience on the ground in Copenhagen, it's it's hard to ignore 100 world leaders and and leading scientists that stake their careers on on being accurate and as – truthful as possible, saying climate change is a reality that we need to deal with now. It's, it's pretty difficult for me to ignore that. And I think it's a fair criticism to say that we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But we know generally what's going to happen. And that's no reason to me to, to stop paying attention to this issue or to say we don't need to do anything to mitigate carbon emissions. To me, that the degree of certainty is there. And it's an important thing to do, even if climate change wasn't happening in a warming direction.
3: May I add something to to the issue of our not knowing what's going to happen? Uh, because there are some real challenges with respect to uncertainty, but I would say those challenges become – more significant when we shift our view from a global one to a local one. Uh, yesterday, I was listening to WFIU, and I heard the advertisement for this program, and the advertisement said something uh, to the effect that we'll be talking about Copenhagen, which I thought, okay, great, I'm prepared to talk about that, and um, what it means for Indiana. You know, when when we shift the discussion for what uh, climate change means for for the world and begin to look at what it means uh, for the region or for the state. We're moving from a realm of of relative certainty to a realm of far greater uncertainty. And I think that's important to keep in mind that there are issues of scale, uh, particularly when it comes to discussing how uh, we're going to adapt to a, a hotter world, a world with greater variation in drought and flood, a world with more acidic oceans, a world with uh, l- uh, less of an ice cap uh, or perhaps no ice cap in the summertime um, there are there are big differences between what we can say about that um, as a global phenomenon and what we can say about what it means for us in indiana i 'm
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in this. Uh, this discussion, because people have a tendency to look at it from their own perspective, which is so short. When you're talking about whether the climate is changing, I mean, who among us can say, based on our own experience from when we were younger to now, that we we know anything about whether the climate is actually changing? It's mean, a snapshot. About, yeah, yeah. you've talked about the you know the models that people look at are over. Well, on the flip side of that
3: is people asking, well, what does it matter if I turn out the yeah. lights or I don't drive today? You know, how could that possibly make a difference mm-hmm. with respect to this problem, you know, regarding gigatons of carbon that we're emitting into the atmosphere? There is uh, an important disconnect there between mm-hmm. our personal experience and the problem we're facing, that's partly what makes this such a difficult and interesting issue when it comes to exploring uh, what happened in Copenhagen. Can you consider it a success given the difficulty of this collective action
2: problem? And just one other thing in terms of the difficulty of understanding this from a personal level, there's an important distinction between climate and weather. And weather's the day-to-day reality that we go through, what temperature it is and what's coming out of the sky, but climate is – More of an average. It's how the Mm -hmm. trends follow out, and so it has been, you know, an exceptionally cold period in January, and the oranges are freezing in Florida. But that doesn't mean that the climate generally is cooling. It doesn't mean the global average temperatures are getting lower and lower. It just means that certain areas are getting colder, but other areas are getting warm as well. And it just means that more areas are getting warm in in places that I've never been and can't, you know, conceive of immediately. But I, I. Believe the scientists that are modeling this on a broader
4: scale, saying, "Yes, generally over the decades, things are still warming." In that's a trend. That I, I think this is a good example of why it's important to have good data. Mm. Uh, our our personal observations tend to be skewed by recency. We pay attention to what's just happened. Uh, in fact, uh, if if we look at trends over decades rather than over months, we we realize that there does seem to be a. Uh, generic change on a very large scale mm-hmm. that we can't observe among, uh, amidst the noise that we are exposed to at the local level,
2: mm-hmm. and it it also becomes a, a lifestyle thing too. I found in terms of who believes climate's changing and who says nope, not happening. We're all fine. We need to keep spewing as much carbon as we can. And to me. I would like to be told you can only have one car. You have to turn your lights off half the time to save energy. That's a challenge I'd embrace and something, you know, just personally growing up in a liberal family on the East Coast, I suppose it's it's just a personal belief for me. And I would like to see, you know, people in in developing countries have a shot at a better livelihood without continuing to pollute the world and, and have all these issues. But you know, if you really believe in capitalist growth, if you believe in bigger cars and, and more money, that's fair enough. You know, it, it's not where I'm coming from. But it also that clashes very directly with the sacrifices that are going to have to be made mm-hmm. to combat climate change.
1: So. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855 811 877 And you can join the discussion at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, we're talking today with uh, three panelists. Uh, Ken, R- Ken Richards and Rob Fishman are here. They're both involved in law and public and public and environmental affairs, um, the, both the law school and SPIA here at IU as professors, as well as the student Andrew Maddox who attended the talks in Copenhagen. Uh, we're going to be right back after a brief break.
6: To Noon Edition on member supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville telephone information at smithville.net and from Mother Bears Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, wfiu.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745.
1: Back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. Our topic today is the recent climate talks in Copenhagen and what they mean for people in the U.S. and Indiana. And those are really difficult topics, topics that we're trying to explore with three guests today, uh, Law and Public and Environmental Affairs Professors Kenneth Richards and Rob Fishman, as well as DePauw student Andrew Maddox, who attended the talks. You can join us by calling eight five five zero eight one one 811 or 877-285-9348, or you can join the discussion at our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition.
0: When these um, discussions are aired um, either in, in writing or, or on television, China always seems to come to the front of the discussion. And um, as an emerging nation, I can see um, how they might have a pretty pretty a lot to say about this topic. So I'd like to know um, uh, if you could speak to that a little bit, Rob.
3: Um yeah, I think China and and the role that China played in Copenhagen uh, both added to the drama of, of the negotiations last month and also is a kind of prelude to what we can expect in future negotiations with respect to climate change and also respect to other treaties, particularly economic treaties and, and world trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, For a long time, it has been an overgeneralization but a useful one to divide countries into two groups, the developed countries uh, with respect to climate change. Those are the countries that um, uh, have been and and are contributing the lion's share of carbon into the atmosphere. Those are the countries that um, most of which committed to some kind of emission target and the countries who will be needing to play the role to develop the next generation of low-carbon or no-carbon energy sources. And then on the other hand, you had the less developed or developing nations, uh, which uh, were and are contributing to greenhouse gas emission primarily through land clearing and deforestation, and who needed to uh, needed tech, ne- technological assistance to essentially leapfrog over the Industrial Revolution, right? To develop in a way that would not be as carbon intensive as the way in which, say, the United States developed. Um, now we have China, which uh, really uh, has one foot planted in each of those camps and has been quite savvy in, uh, in, in playing whichever role is to its advantage. Uh, on the one hand, uh, China is a developing country from the point of view of per capita income, from the point of view um, of uh, uh, to, uh, some measures of greenhouse gas emissions. But on the other hand, uh, China is an economic powerhouse. It's it's the largest contributor of carbon emissions to the globe now. It's something like a quarter of of all emission. And um, that complicates what had been the accepted script for these sorts of international negotiations. Also, we had China uh, stepping up as the chief – Critic of the United Nations as the international meddler, you remember from last month it was China that complained about how an international verification regime for determining how much carbon each country was contributing would be a violation of the nation's sovereignty. Well, that ought to sound familiar to anybody who has followed u s domestic politics over the past couple of decades um, so uh, you know. Part of the achievement of Copenhagen was getting the United States and China and and other nations to agree to a a basic blueprint for negotiations ahead, but China also signaled its um, its intention to um, to 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 bargain using these traditional roles in in ways that that will be uh, a real challenge
1: to a country like the United States. It doesn't sound like we're going to solve this today. But no. we have three callers that want to talk to us, and it's uh, it's good to have all these callers. I think we're going to have a lot this half hour. John is first. John?
5: Yes. How are you this afternoon?
1: Good. Thank you. Go ahead.
5: Gentlemen, I'm, I'm speaking to you, and ma'am, I'm speaking to you from the wonderful city of Greenwood, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, point that I would like to at least bring up is that the gentleman who called and had such Pointed uh, disagreement with the fact that there is global climate change has not read the uh, article of, or information from Canada, for instance, who the Canadian government has now commissioned uh, one, if not started on the second, uh, ice-breaking destroyer uh, in order for them to be able to, dis- to defend their northern coast. Must realize that climate change means that Canada will have a northern coast to defend.
1: Yeah, a good point.
5: And that's something that a lot of folks don't understand that when climate change affects nations like Canada, our friends, and they have to build Navy ships to defend a coast that was never there, Mm -hmm. then perhaps they should be thinking more about. 50
1: years down the road. Yeah. Hey,
5: And ladies, thank you very much for listening, and I hope that this creates a little comment.
1: Hey, thanks for calling from Greenwood. We appreciate it. Any reaction? Uh, Well, it's Rob Fishman.
3: I I would say that um, one of the issues that um, all nations are concerned with in terms of adapting to climate change, because remember, even in the best-case scenarios – for carbon reduction, we're still looking at um, a significant uh, warming of the globe due to the carbon that's historically been emitted. So there are uh, national security issues uh, that uh, certainly the United States is taking seriously that go beyond simply say having a new coast to defend. Mm-hmm. Uh, they include issues of dealing with environmental refugees who will be driven from coastal areas uh, after uh, storms uh, are uh, become uh, a. Th- threat to habitation. Uh, Africa particularly uh, uh, is dealing with and will be dealing with um, refugees from expansion of of desert areas. And um – you know that 's something that that the military is taking seriously, also border disputes point that my uh, colleague Vicky Moretsky always makes is that you know no one has particularly cared very much where national boundaries were northward of the northern coasts in the northern hemisphere uh, because the, all that area was underneath sea ice, and in anticipation of sea ice being gone in the summertime. Uh, all of a sudden those boundaries become more important uh, not just for navigation but also for access to the mineral wealth that lies beneath the water. So there are lots of – what you might think of as being uh, less obvious uh, impacts. Uh, Climate change isn't just about hotter temperatures. It's about uh, higher sea levels. It's about uh, new national security challenges. It's about public health challenges with increase in disease vectors. Uh, There are a a huge range of uh, adaptation activities that uh, we'll need to take irrespective
2: of how successful treaties might be for reducing carbon. And one of those, I think, very significant adaptation measures that's overarching in a lot of ways is going to be freshwater issues, and that that's certainly a national security concern. It's an interesting point you bring up, Rob. And especially along the Colorado River in this country, there are going to be more and more significant freshwater declines and um, shortages for agriculture and industry as well as personal use, and that is... Going to be a global trend, certainly, and something that I've, I've heard experts and articles from NPR to Circle of Blue to all kinds of organizations saying water could very well be the oil of the twenty first century. It seems to be the
4: buzzline these days. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's an interesting point. Yeah. And one of the uh, one of the things that the comment brings up is that uh, climate change itself is not an unalloyed evil. Uh, using Canada as an example, there are certain benefits that Canada is going to experience out of this, uh, not least of which is changes in the kinds of crops and the uh, yield on crops. And that – the the fact that not every country uh, is going to feel the the same kind of an impact brings us back to this issue of how do you negotiate a treaty uh, among 197 countries, each with a unique uh, impact, some of which may actually feel some benefits out of this. All right, let's go back to the phones. We have uh, Robert next. Robert?
3: Uh, yeah,
7: I've been listening to all this. I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, one, the climate is changing, has changed, and will change in the future, and there's not anything man can do about it. For example, uh, central Indiana was under a few hundred feet of ice some fifteen, eighteen, twenty thousand 20,000 years ago. It was a normal ice age. Uh, and there was a warming spell, I think five or six hundred years in Greenland and all. The uh, Vikings were raising gardens in places under ice. Uh, man, it's a lot of hubris for man to think he's going to change climate. Uh, I, and I got it with that. All you can talk about is carbon, carbon, carbon. Well, carbon dioxide is a normal part of the atmosphere. Uh, no consideration of sunspot activity and other. Uh, astronomical uh things i haven't heard any of that from you it's all carbon 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 uh you kind of jump from a uh a premise to a conclusion based on incomplete and or faulty data and i think uh this whole deal about climate change it's become a sort of a religion uh rather than a science
1: uh, based thing i'll shut up all right Robert. (laughs) hey thanks a lot for the call okay reaction to
4: that Well, uh, Robert, you're absolutely right. Climate changes, it changes over time Uh, and at some level, there isn't anything man can do about it. On the other hand, what we're seeing is uh, human intervention on an unprecedented scale uh, and climate change at a rate uh, that may be unprecedented. Uh, Again, going back to uh, my earlier point, this is why we need to be able to develop uh, – useful, accurate uh, models with uh, reasonable degrees of certainty in the results. Uh, and uh, To the extent that we're using those, they indicate that in fact, we can have some effect on mitigating uh, the climate change process through addressing our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, None of us are particularly expert in this area. Uh, but we – that's why we have international processes like the IPCC which brings together top uh, climatologists from around the, uh, around the world to try to develop a consensus on what we know, what we don't know and what additional uh, analysis needs to be done. Now, I have
1: to react a little bit. Robert mentioned that he thought it took a lot of hubris to think that we could, we could, ha- we could have an impact on climate change. But to turn that around a little bit, isn't it true that a lot of the – Changes we're seeing now are are because of what uh, civilization has evolved to, and the kinds of things that we've invented, and the kinds of things that we're doing. Yeah.
2: I don't think there's much doubt about that. I've never been a part of a lab that actually measures the parts per million or the percentage of carbon in the atmosphere, but I've I've looked at a lot of the charts and read stories about the impact of it and learned about it in class, if nothing else. And they can measure these CO2 bubbles. They can drill into sea ice from tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago and and measure the amount of carbon in these tiny little bubbles that's been suspended for a long time. And that's an accurate measure of the content of carbon over that entire span. And there's, from what I understand, and unprecedented amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And that's the major contributor. Certainly, Robert mentioned there are other factors at play as well. I'm I'm not familiar with sunspots. I haven't heard about that per se. But there are, of course, other greenhouse gases and there are issues of other cycles going on at the same time. But it's a a significant contributor to warming because it does trap more heat. And just think about the amount of cars and buildings that are on the planet now versus 100 years ago in China, especially that's only going to continue to expand. and, And that's an incredible contributing factor going forward.
1: All right. Our phone numbers again, 855 877 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can also join the discussion at our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And we're going back to the phones and Jack is next, Jack.
8: Hi there. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to dive into that last debate. But, uh, <laughs> the... The thing I wanted to bring up really is in regard to uh, your comments about uh, China and their behavior and and a lot of our politicians here in Indiana, they kind of, China is the, the great excuse, you know, like, well, we can't really do anything because China won't do anything and therefore we should do nothing. Uh, but, but really, China is doing a lot. Uh, you, you know, they're on pace to be the world leader in wind power. Uh, they have the largest uh, deployment in one city of solar hot water heaters. Um, you know, China is going after it. Um, true, they are also buying up. They're they're trying to cover all bases. I think you know they've got uh, they're securing their uh, oil and coal resources uh, in various parts of the world, but. Uh, it seems clear that they are wholeheartedly trying to develop, uh, you know, at least the wind industry and and solar industry, um, but for whatever reason, I know there's obvious reasons, but uh, here in particularly in Indiana and in Bloomington, where we get 96 percent of our electricity from coal, we we don't want to accept the fact that it's not a good way to do it, even if uh, you know, like the previous caller, you can't accept the science of global warming, um, you know, there are many, many horrendous things involved with coal, um, you know, mercury poisoning and, and other heavy metals which are involved that are released when we burn it, when we mine it, not to mention the fact that we have to destroy massive, you know, entire mountaintops to get it uh, at it in the first place. Um, so i I guess my my frustration is you know why are people in places like Indiana and the politicians particularly not doing something to uh you know demand that we at least have a less destructive form of of energy than coal uh, you know even if you can't believe in climate science for some reason then it 's an obvious uh, health hazard for us to continue burning coal and, and i 'll take comments on all
4: right all right Jack Ken um, addressing the issue of uh, of China you know it, it, it 's an interesting observation that out of Kyoto we had a lot of promises uh, of national reductions in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of promises with relatively little delivery. Uh, very few countries actually hit their targets. China presents an odd Uh, An an odd contrast and so, to to, to build on Rob's earlier comment that China is providing us a new model. China is actually not promising to do anything and doing it. They're they're doing far more than they're willing to promise. So in contrast to so many other countries that don't – that make promises and don't keep them. China is not making promises and and, and taking action. The area that, that was a stumbling block for them was when we started to say, OK, but we'd like to actually be able to verify everything that you're doing, measure what you're accomplishing and, and so on. And, and they raised the issue that, no, we, we are going to insist on our own sovereignty in this issue and we don't want the intervention of, of others. Uh, they seem to have given some ground on that. But, but the other thing is when we Talk about uh, uh, taking action here in the u s and they uh, compare it to uh, uh, compare it to China. Uh, the Chinese actually have uh, a lot more effective leadership in this area simply because they don 't have as many institutional obstacles mm-hmm. to raising new programs and, and, and uh, establishing new uh, uh, certainly new no loyal
3: opposition.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's an efficient government. Mm.
1: Um, Ken, could you address coal a little bit too? Because I know you've done some work with carbon sequestration.
4: Um, the uh, uh, The comment about coal is an interesting one because you know why why aren't uh, why aren't we in Indiana demanding a less destructive form of energy and the answer is because uh, it doesn't pay us to to, uh, demand that. It's in our economic self-interest to burn uh, burn the coal we have and in fact, uh, uh, we're trying to make moves as a state in the direction of importing less coal from the West and burning more Indiana coal. One of the ways that that we're trying to uh, reduce the amount of uh, that impact is by capturing the carbon dioxide that's produced uh, from uh, from the – uh, uh, process of producing electricity, uh, concentrating it and pumping it uh, deep below the, uh, below the surface into geological formations. That's a, a process. It's still very much in its uh, uh, nascent stages. We're trying to uh, uh, learn more about it and do more mapping of, of where would it be appropriate to do this in Indiana. Uh, but uh, but uh, Jack raised an interesting issue, which is even if we manage to reduce the carbon dioxide uh, emissions associated with coal production, we still have to deal with uh, some of the other environmental impacts and in particular, the impacts associated with uh, the, um, uh, the mining itself. And In fact, that problem will be exacerbated if we, if we uh, institute carbon capture and storage on a wide scale because uh, the process itself consumes more electricity. So we'll be consuming a third more coal just to produce the same amount of electricity.
1: I don't think we've ever done a show on uh, just coal and its impact in Indiana, both economically and environmentally, and that whole issue. It would probably be a good show for us to do somewhere
2: down the line. Andrew? If I could just jump in back to the China issue, we had Mm -hmm. students from China in our group that traveled to Copenhagen, and we had an interesting experience the second week where one of the American students and a Chinese student got together to try to write a common editorial uniting the Chinese and American student factions around some sort of movement forward and it, it was tough for them to establish consensus for a while they, you know they're coming at it from two different lives essentially mm-hmm. in China there's still a massive impoverished population that's trying to figure out how to get regular electricity and how to pick themselves up. And in the US, we sort of have too much and we're in a state of excess in a lot of ways and we're trying to figure out how to reduce it. And they did end up successfully writing an editorial calling for at least some sort of united action and and youth support going forward. But in in terms of lifestyles, it was fun from our perspective to see where they're coming from.
1: Okay, we've got three callers waiting to talk to us. We only have about nine minutes to go. So we're going going to try to be fairly quick. Uh, Dina, go ahead. Thank you. I have a couple of questions. Um, first of all, I understand that one of the major results of Copenhagen was an agreement that the developing countries will provide aid. Uh, sorry, the developed countries will provide aid to the developing countries to cope with climate change and uh, over the next decade. And I'm wondering if you can give us uh, some details as to uh, what is envisioned, who exactly in the developed countries will be providing this aid, for what purposes, and who exactly will be the recipients of that aid. And secondly, I'd like your sense of what do you think about dealing with climate change in the context of a meeting of 197 heads of state of different countries. Is this a good way to go, or should we be anticipating or preferring advocating a much smaller format, and at
0: what level of diplomacy?
1: All right.
3: Thanks for the call. Rob? Uh, well, let me start with the first part of the question, the money. I, I, uh, I've got the... Uh the Copenhagen Accord in in, in front of me here and uh, I forget who it was. Someone today talked about the $100 billion. That's $100 billion committed by 2020. More immediately, the parties committed to $30 billion over the course of the next two years. Well, $30 billion for what? Uh, One of the things I had mentioned previously is uh, uh, money for technology transfer. So if China or the United States is going to be developing uh, better uh, photovoltaic technology to uh, create Create electricity from sunlight. Well, that would be a good thing uh, deployed anywhere in the world where it will substitute for the burning of a fossil fuel or a biofuel that has carbon in it. But the other um, uh, major ticket item for that money is uh, what the Accord simply calls forestry. What does that mean? Well, that addresses uh, that, uh, that issue that I, I mentioned earlier, which was the classic issue for uh, the less developed countries, which is to uh, fund uh, projects to – prevent deforestation, uh, uh, reverse forest degradation and to reforest in order both to uh, provide uh, better livelihoods for people in those countries but also to avoid the carbon emission associated with those
1: activities. All right. We're going to go to the next call. Uh, We've got Andy next. Andy?
9: hi uh my question uh, r- really is is more of a question comment and uh, it seems to me that as far as the uh, uh, you know finding alternative uh, methods of of powering and and uh trying to get away from uh, fossil fuels um, it, it just seems to me that the almighty dollar pretty much pretty much has it at that point and uh it's it's interesting and very curious to me that uh a couple of years back uh we didn't hear anything about uh hybrid vehicles hybrid uh, cars anything like that and just in the last couple of years uh when the oil prices go up uh now there becomes an interest and now there becomes a viable market and i believe that's going to be the same way with uh with the rest of these countries uh, uh, you talked about china I believe that China is going to meet their uh, quota when we can find an alternative type of, of fuel uh, that's cheaper than burning coal uh, or, or oil. Uh, so it, to me, it, it, it seems uh, sort of a, a no-brainer that, that we need to uh, spend a whole lot more money in the uh, revising of these uh, alternative fuels Uh, and alternative energy sources, you know, I I hear a lot about uh, solar. I hear a lot about uh, some of the others that that they're coming up with. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the old uh, uh, demand kind of thing. Uh, People will demand it when it becomes economically viable to them. I mean, I I hate to say that, but it is – a a truth for a lot of mainstream Americans here in this country, and especially in Indiana. I just wanted to hear your comments and and see if if you all knew of any uh, new and upcoming technologies that that seem very promising.
1: Okay, Andy, thanks a lot. Um, We have Andy to comment on, and Ken's going to do that. Also, I don't think we got to the second part of that previous Mm -hmm. question about the 197 nations getting together, so maybe either Andrew or Rob can respond to that. So, Ken, why don't you go first?
4: Well, the... um, the, the, uh, as an economist, I have to agree with Andy that the, uh, the economic incentives are extremely important mm-hmm. in this. Uh, I work with uh, the Luger – the Richard G. Luger Center on Renewable Energy. One of our charges is to try to, uh, uh, try to develop uh, new technologies for uh, renewable energy uh, and always behind that is the drive to lower the costs. And then at the same time, we're doing research on uh, uh, what kinds of at – what, at what kinds of costs would various uh, energy sources become uh, uh, viable. And those are extremely important questions. Mm-hmm. All right. On the 197 countries getting together, Andrew? I know they
2: had to limit – even in, when the heads of state showed up on the Thursday and Friday at Copenhagen, they had to limit everybody to something like three minutes of speaking. And it was still going to take sort of two and a half days just to get up and oh, wow. say, we support climate science. We think something should be done and then mm-hmm. sit down. And it's an important symbolic gesture, but it certainly seemed inefficient from our perspective. And
3: it- I would just I would just say that it, we didn't get a chance to talk about United States domestic legislation pending dealing with carbon emissions, and uh, if if that legislation is going to reduce the amount of of carbon we produce as a country, it will have to mean that one way or another through tax through putting a cap on carbon, that the cost of emitting carbon will go up. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only way we will accomplish that. And I think that is going to be a very difficult
1: political economic pill for many people to swallow. Mm-hmm. All right. We've got, uh, we're going to try to get one more call in. Uh, Henry is next. Henry?
5: Yes, I'd like to know. if Missing from this whole uh, argument to me has been – One thing that happened in the last century, and that was the population explosion from 1.6 billion approximately to 5.8 billion, and it seems to me that of all the animal species, humanity is the one that is most aggressive in changing the environment that sustains us, and it seems to me that it would be foolish to think that we are possibly not changing the the climate, and I wonder how you feel about uh, that portion of the debate that seems to be missing.
4: Okay, Thank you, Henry. Well, there's no question that uh, population growth is a a major issue in this. Uh, And uh, uh, one of the the, uh, ethical questions is do we we work on a per capita basis when we're trying to think about uh, the amount of emissions that might be um, uh, allowed to each country or or do we do it on on some other basis? But but population – consistently enters into uh, enters into these discussions. Trevor Burrus
2: And the issue of ethics is a really interesting one as populations continue to expand because it's going to be worse in the developing countries and on, on the coastlines and areas like Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. Africa. And is it fair for those people to bear the brunt of population growth and resource scarcity because they're already so incredibly impoverished? And I, I just feel really – distraught personally because of that because it likely won't affect me at least in the next decade or two.
1: Well, we're going to have to do this again sometime because this has been <laughs> really informative and interesting. And uh, we, obviously, we don't have enough time to get to everything we want to talk about today. And we are uh, running out of time. So I want to thank uh, Ken and Rob and Andrew all for being here with us today for Mary Catherine and producer Ariana Prothero, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.